and it's going to last for four weeks, and it's going to be on worship. And we're going to consider what worship is today. We're also going to consider why do we worship, how do we worship, and what does worship look like as it connects to Monday, right? Uh, so uh, right now in your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. And we're going to go to the passage where it's the oldest example of what worship looks like in the Bible. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1 through 7. And uh, I'm going to read from the English Standard Version of the Bible. I'm going to read it out loud if you guys follow along silently with me. Hear the word of God. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. This is the word of God. Uh, to answer the question of what is worship, we should first see the similarities and the differences between Cain and Abel. And when we look at, when we try to answer the question of what is worship, we're not looking at it from an institutional worship point of view. What I mean is, what does worship look like on a large scale in a church? Cain and Abel, with this example of worship, it's not institutional worship. There is no temple, there's no tabernacle, there's no gathering of God's people. It's just personal worship. So there, a lot can be said about what worship is, but what I want to focus on today is what the passage focuses on, is focusing on, and it's personal worship not institutional worship, not what worship looks like on a grand scale in, in, a, in a church or a, or a religious institution, but what does worship look like to each one of you? What should it look like according to God? So I am getting to the heart of worship, right? Because that's where it begins, is with the person, right? Now here's the thing. Let's look at some similarities here. That way we can understand why God rejected Cain and accepted Abel. Why God thought Cain's worship was unacceptable and why God thought Abel's worship was. First off, a similarity between them is that both Cain and Abel are from the same family. Now, before I interpret these things, I'm just going to list the similarities. So if you want to just write it down in that blank box in your bulletin, you're free to do so. But they're both from the same family. Both are from parents who know God, Adam and Eve. I mean, if you want to talk about people who know God, right? Adam and Eve know God. Both are male. That's also a similarity. Both worship no other God but God. So when they were offering their offerings to God, 
It was God. It, was, it wasn't some other idol. It wasn't some other religion. It was God that they worshipped. And yet one was acceptable, one was not. And both, now this is kind of anachronistic. It's kind of like going back and kind of you know, misplaced in history. But both offerings were Levitical sacrifices. What I mean by that was when you get to the book of Leviticus, there are five major offerings that Leviticus talks about, that the Bible talks about, that God basically said, these are the five offerings that you can give to me. And both Cain and Abel's offerings fall under the category of Levitical offerings, meaning both were sanctioned by God. Now, I know that happens later. That's why I said it's anachronistic. But still, in the eyes of the law, if there was a Levitical code when Cain and Abel were offering worship to God, both were Levitical sacrifices, both sanctioned by God. Those are the similarities. And that's pretty much where the similarities stop. So you, they're both from the same family, both male, both worship God and no other God. Both offerings were Levitical, both were kosher, okay? Um, what are the differences? Number one, Eve mentions God's help with Cain's birth, but she doesn't mention that with Abel's birth, which is interesting. So when Cain was born, Eve basically said, it's with God's help, it's by God's help that I have a male child, I have Cain, right? So that's the difference. She never says that about Abel. Now, you can make an argument from silence, but, you know, that's kind of a straw man thing going on there. So Eve mentions God's help with Cain. It's interesting because it's Cain who was rejected. But yet she says, by God's help, I gave birth to Cain, right? Secondly, their vocations are different. Their jobs, right? Cain is a worker of the field. You could say he was like a farmer, right? Uh, Abel was a, was a keeper of the sheep. You could say he was a shepherd, right? So their vocations were different. But what's similar is they both had a job to do, but there were two different jobs. And when you look in verses 3 to 4, how they worship God was different. Now, I'm going to get into this, but not just right now. How they worship God was different. So they worshiped the same God. That was the same. But how they worship God was different. God accepted Abel's offering, but he rejected Cain's offering. Now, this is important because this is an understanding from objectivity, meaning regardless of what you're doing, regardless of what Cain and Abel were doing in, in regard to worship, what they thought, what they felt, what they were behaviorally going through, God accepted Abel's offering and not Cain, regardless of what the human activity was and participation was. Very important to see it from that objective point of view and not just the subjective point of view of saying, this is what I'm giving to God, right? So God accepted Abel's offering, but God didn't accept Cain. That's a major difference. Cain's response to God is very different from Abel's. There's no record of Abel's response to God, but there's a very specific reference to Cain's response to God. Very different. There was anger. His face fell, right? Uh, another thing that's really interesting in verse 6 through 7 is that God spoke with Cain directly. You don't, you don't have that with Abel. You don't see... Now, I'm not saying God didn't speak to God... Uh, I'm sorry, that God didn't speak to Abel directly. He could have. 
But what I'm saying is the text actually doesn't say. But what it does say is that God spoke with Cain directly. You see an actual dialogue happening. Very interesting because it's Cain's offering that was rejected, right? And the last thing is Cain murders Abel, right? So with these similarities and differences, what does it all mean? And so I'm going to break it down to you. First, I'm going to cover what worship is not. And secondly, I'm going to cover what worship is, right? And remember, I'm not trying to give you a full theology of institutional worship, what it looks like as a church, what worship should be. This is a personal worship example that God gave in Genesis 4. We're getting to the heart of worship. So whether you are in a large institutional scale, we're not that large, but larger than yourself, right? <laughs> like this, or whether you're at home and just praying and singing and reading scripture to yourself, well, to God, but by yourself, right? It doesn't matter because the shape of worship, whether you're at home in your private room doing that or whether you're sitting here or standing up here, the, the heart of worship doesn't change. And that's what I'm getting at here. And that's, that's the question, that's the specific question of what is worship that I'm trying to uh, cover here. So what, what, is, what is not worship? What worship is not, number one, worship is not when you come from a religious family or where you, you are children of, of believing parents. So because you come from a Christian family, right, and because you are children of believing parents, it doesn't mean that you worship God. Okay? Let me make that very clear. Right? Both Cain and Abel were from Adam and Eve. You can call them a, a believing home, a Christian home, right? But Abel and Cain, their worship was very different. And just because you're a part of a religious family, a Christian family, doesn't mean that when you are sitting here and your parents are in the other building or you're sitting here and your parents are here, it doesn't mean that you are automatically in worship and that God is accepting your worship because of that fact. Okay, number two. Worship is also not whether you are male or female, meaning um, Cain and Abel were both male, right? And yet, even though they were both male, right, one's worship was accepted and one's worship was not accepted. Why is this important? It's important when you bring in the conversation of the functions of male and female in the church. What I mean by that is, for example, we're, we're praying and preparing for elders, right? For us, it's only men who can be elders, right? Now, when you say something like that, right, it's controversial. And so pe people will begin to ask, why? What is it about females that's, that makes them inferior? And this is where this point is very important. It's not that females are inferior before God or they're less spiritual, they're not holy enough, or they're not whatever enough, right? In the eyes of God, whether you're male or female, qualitatively, you are equal. Qualitatively, you are equal whether you are male or female. And that's a, that's a deduction from the fact that qualitatively, Cain and Abel's worship was not the same, and they're both male. So just because you're a religious male 
In other words, just because you're a Christian male doesn't make your worship better than anyone else, is what I'm saying. Now, here's the thing. Male and female, functionally, qualitatively, they're the same. Functionally, they're different. Okay? So, your inherent worth, whether you are male or female, is the same before God in worship. But your economy, your role in the church is different. Right? And it has nothing to do with your qualitative worth. It has to do with your economic, your functional role. Right? For ex- I'll give you a biblical example. The Holy Spirit right, is called the helper. Okay? Now, the Holy Spirit qualitatively is equally God. He's 100% God. And yet, he's called our helper. <laughs> or you can say he's God's helper. But still, it seems like with that kind of a label, that the Holy Spirit is somehow qualitatively inferior because he plays a different functional economic role in the Trinity. But that's not the case. The Holy Spirit and God the Father and God the Son qualitatively are equal. But economically, functionally, they're different. Right? The Father never died on the cross. And it's not the Holy Spirit that sent the Son. Okay? They have different roles. They're qualitatively equal. That's the point I'm making. And it's very important to know this because... Not only does it provide as a guard to prevent religious arrogance because you have a certain position in the church, but it's it's positively an affirmation of God's grace that he is not a God of partiality, that he welcomes male and female equally into his presence and into his fellowship, right? So it's very important that we know that Worship is not about whether you are male or female. That God accepts the worship of male elders more than female worshipers here, right? That's very important. It keeps the elders' hearts humble too, right? Thirdly, what worship is not? Worship is not about conventionally worshiping the Judeo-Christian God. What I mean by that is, Cain and Abel both worshipped God and no one else. They weren't worshipping Baal. They weren't worshipping any Canaanite gods. Okay, They were worshipping God. right? And so when we worship, just because you are saying the name, God, the name of God, just because you're using his Bible, just because you're in a church that confesses that God, that doesn't guarantee that you are worshipping God. That's the point I'm trying to make. Conventional worship. In other words, worship because it is convenient. Right? Convenient worship. Right? So just because you are here in God's name doing his prescribed things, it doesn't guarantee that you are worshiping him. It doesn't guarantee that God accepts your worship. Fourthly, doing something out of mere ritual. I mentioned that Cain's uh, offering, which he offered, what kind of, what what did he offer when he worshiped God? The produce of the field, grain, thank you. 
right? Grain offering, which is a Levitical offering. I think it's Leviticus 2. I might be wrong about the chapter. Um, it's a grain offering. It's prescribed by God, right? The other thing that Abel offered was what? An offering of an animal, right? Which is basically the other four offerings. Burnt offering, peace offering, guilt offering, sin offering, right? Five offerings. Burnt offering, peace offering, sin offering, guilt offering, right? And Cain offered the one grain offering there is in the Levitical system. What I'm trying to say is this. This is very important. Just because we go through the motions and just because we're actually behaviorally obeying God's word doesn't guarantee that we're worshiping God. If you really think about what I'm saying, it's, it's, it's going to hit you hard because every one of us, every worship must struggle with being distracted, struggle with focusing on God. And if you know this, the struggles of your heart, you know that going through the motions does not guarantee your worship has been accepted by God, right? So doing something out of mere ritual, just because it's been done that way, just because it's the Bible that tells us to do it this way, just because it's the church leaders that cause us, that tell us to do it this way, right? I'm glad we have like these bodyguards going on. <laughs> You know, um, I'm very thankful that we have, I mean, I'm so thankful for Pastor Tony and Pastor Billy who went out to uh, correct that child's behavior. Uh, but I'm also glad that we have children like that. Um, because what would our church be like if we had no children who would bust in our doors like that? You'd be like, it'd be peaceful. What are you talking about? Right? Yeah, like a graveyard. Right? I'm so thankful for our young people. And I hope God sends more kids who bust through our doors where pastors meet them. Right? Uh, I love it. Um, now, worship that's offered ritually and purely from behavior is not acceptable to God. So what basically God is saying is even if you follow all the right steps right, of what I told you to do in worship, I'm still not going to accept it based on just that. Right? That's what he's saying. Fifthly, birth-related circumstances, okay? Eve said that it was by God's help that she gave birth to Cain, right? You would think, man, that kind of guy has to be chosen by God. That kind of guy where God somehow supernaturally intervened to make his birth and his existence in this world possible, that guy is the one. That guy is going to do something great for God. Not necessarily the case. Birth-related circumstances does not guarantee true worship. I say this because I come from the Korean-American Christi Christianity tradition. And there's this thing called boteshina, right? Boteshina. And that means that you have, it's like conception faith, right? Pretty much. Now, there are two ways that you can understand that. One way is basically saying that it, you're, you were just born into a Christian home, right? So my parents used to tell me, even before you were born, you were worshiping God. I was like, whoa, I'm so awesome, right? No. 
No, okay? The other way, that way is just saying you're, you're born into a Christian home and it's a very good thing where God's covenantal blessing is upon you. We're about to baptize Henry. We baptize Benjamin, right? And uh, it's such a blessing to know that God's grace meets us where we are, even when we are unable to know him, right? In that sense, botishinang or conception faith, whatever you want to call it, right, is, is, is a blessing. It's basically saying you, you grew up with the blessing of a Christian home. But there's, a, there's, a, there's an unbiblical way to understand that. And I've heard it where you actually have faith, like saving faith, before you were born. And I don't, I don't see anywhere in Scripture that says that. Now, God elects people before you were born, before the foundation of the world, but you don't have saving faith before you're born, okay? Um, here's the thing. Your birth circumstances, whether you have miracle stories, now I don't want to knock, I'm, I just knocked mine, so, okay? I could, I could tell you about how my, grand, how my parents almost didn't have me, right? How my mother's life was at risk, in danger, right? I could tell you these stories, but you know what? When it comes to true worship, it's, it doesn't really hold water. There's no, we can't put our trust in that. You can't put, you can't have, hang your, 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 your spiritual future upon how you were born, okay? Especially when the New Testament emphasizes not the first biological, physical birth, but the second spiritual birth right? Which is a matter of the heart. So special birth-related circumstances don't guarantee that you will be a person who is truly worshiping God. Because Eve basically said of Cain, it's by God's help I had this child. It's a miracle. But it was Cain that God, it was Cain's worship that God didn't accept. Now, another difference, the sixth one, vocation-specific worship experience. <laughs> Let me say that again. Vocation-specific worship experience. What I mean by that is Cain was a farmer. He was a worker of the field. Abel was a keeper of the sheep. They have two different vocations, right? And you can't say that one vocation is more disposed to more genuine faith, greater union with Christ, greater union with God in worship. You can't say that because it's different, right? If you could say that, then you can say that just because Cain was a field worker, therefore he should have been closer to God. Or because Abel was a sheep keeper, his worship was accepted. Now, some people do say that it's because Abel offered up this animal sacrifice, and they're looking to the Levitical system, and they're looking to the cross to make that argument. I get that. I'm not knocking that. But there's a clearer answer, I believe, when you look in Hebrews 11, verse 4, when it says, by faith, Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice. So what I see here is not a worship experience that's more acceptable because of something, because of your career choice or because 
that's the kind of life that you live. For example, what would happen if a former, a former prostitute came in and she gave her offering? Would you assume her offering is unacceptable and unholy before God because of the fact that she was a former prostitute? Right? Um, Vocation-specific worship experience. Depending on what kind of vocation you have, uh, your worship experience can take a certain, can be a certain flavor. It can be more intellectual, more rational, more uh, text-based, right? Let's say you're in Boston, in the heart of college town, right? Your worship experience can be very intellectual and rational. Just because it's that way doesn't automatically make it more acceptable to God. You can be in the boonies in somewhere in Georgia, and you can have a worship experience that's not intellectual. Maybe it's more emotional, right? Maybe it's more relational. And you can say, well, that's more spiritual because you're not relying on your reason, you're relying on the Holy Spirit or God, right? when you're actually relying, you can't say just because of your vocation-specific worship experience that it's more acceptable to God, right? That's not where worship, where the definition of worship lies. The last one is mere communication with God. Just because you talk to God or that he talks to you, right, back in Cain and Abel's day, it doesn't mean that you are accepted by God. Cain had direct conversation with God. And just because Cain had direct conversation with God, it didn't guarantee that he was in right relationship and fellowship with God. Right? That's not the case. Mere communication with God does not guarantee true worship. What is true worship? Well, first, how you worship God. It's... it's if you just say, well, I'm worshiping God, well, I'm doing what he said, that's not enough. Those things should be there, yes, but what God wants is something more internal, deeper, okay? Hebrews 11:4. by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, by faith, okay? 1 John chapter 3, verse 10 through 12. By this it is evident who are the children of God who are the children, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. What is this passage saying? It's saying that true worship begins with the fact that you are a child of God. Meaning, regeneration is a prerequisite to true worship. You must be saved in order to give true worship up to God. You, just because someone is displaying the correct emotions and the, doing, going through the right behavior, that's not, that doesn't guarantee true worship. The means of, of worship... your worship being acceptable to God is not by you formulaically going through the motions. 
you have to be a child of God. You have to be saved and regenerate and part of God's family for him to accept you and for him to accept your worship. And Jude 1, verse 11. Woe to them, talking about the false prophets, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain. The kind of worship that doesn't seek your own, but seeks the benefit of others. So God first, right? God-centered worship, true worship, is the kind of worship where you seek the benefit of others in your life, in your worship. A lot of worship today is very individualistic and it has to do with how I feel and how, what I get out of worship. You know what Jude 1 verse 11 says? They walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain. Right? And it, mention, it mentions Balaam's error and it mentions Korah's rebellion. Guys, what I'm trying to show you is that your approach to worship is much less about you and is much more about the people around you. Okay? And it starts with me. Right? I have to make sure that I communicate in a way where it's not about where my comfort as a preacher is, but where you guys are in receiving the word of God. And there are so many weeks when I feel like I wasn't faithful that I would repent. There are other weeks where I feel like God did something and I'm so thankful for what he did. But the thing is, worship, guys. You know what true worship is? Worship is not a means for you to get right with God. By the time you come into worship, you should be already right with God in Christ. Right? That's the thing. Like, if you're giving true worship to God, it's not about consuming, right? It's about sharing. That's why congregational singing, that's why prayer, we have all these things. The word of God is read out loud. We have the confessions, right? It's much more about blessing each other than being blessed, okay? How you worship. Secondly, true worship is is defined by whether God accepts your worship. In Amos chapter 5, verse 21 through 24, you know what's really interesting about the book of Amos? It's a short little Old Testament book. You know what he was, especially in, in the context of our conversation today and in, in the context of Genesis 4? Amos, he was a shepherd and he was a farmer. And you know what he was dealing with during his time that God was calling him as a prophet? In other words, he was a shepherd, like Abel. He was a farmer, like Cain, right? Amos was chosen by God to speak to the northern kingdom of Israel during a time when they were prosperous, when they were able to enjoy many, many luxuries. And during that time, there were two problems. Number one, idolatry. They were worshiping other gods. And number two, Injustice. They were oppressing the needy and the poor and the weak among them. So in a time of prosperity and opulence, there was idolatry where they were worshiping other gods and there was injustice. They were oppressing the poor. And Amos chapter 5, verse 21 through 24, this is God himself speaking through the prophet of Amos. So first person, God, right? This is what God says in Amos 5, verse 21. I hate, I despise your feasts. 
and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. You see that? Just because in a, a worship service is solemn doesn't make it worship. There can be a moment, there can be an instance where God says, I hate your solemnness. I hate your assemblies. Verse 22, even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, that's exactly what Cain and Abel offered, right? And what God is saying is, it doesn't matter whether you give me an animal or grain. That's why, that's why I'm saying it's not really about what Cain and Abel offered. It's because of verses like this in Amos and, other, and elsewhere, like Hebrews 11. He's, he says, even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the... You know, for someone who really loves praise, when I, when I hear this, it just broke me to think that there have been times in my life when I would praise God and it would be unpleasing in his sight. And in verse 23, it says, take away from me, he calls praise, take away from me the noise of your songs. He calls it noise. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. And this is what he says. This is why. And he, this is what he expects of his worshipers. And what he says is, verse 24, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And what God is saying through the prophet Amos during a time when Israel was prosperous and they were worshiping other gods and they were oppressing the poor, what he was saying is, forget your praise, forget your feasts, forget your assemblies, your worship services, forget your expensive animals that you give me, forget all that, I hate all that. What I want is, let justice roll down like waters. And righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. What he's saying is, crush your idols. That's what I want. That's what true worship is. Crush your idols. Forget your songs. Forget your preaching. Forget your worship service worship services, forget all your solemnness, crush your idols in your heart, crush them all. And secondly, relieve the poor. Let justice roll down. That's what he's saying. And that's what he's saying true worship looks like. And what a true worshiper looks like. Let me, let me bring two more things. What worship looks like, what true worship looks like, is how you are to God after worship, not just when you worship, how you are to God after worship, and number two, how you are to others after worship. So what true worship looks like is just not about when we're sitting here, standing here, preaching, singing, whatever, praying, reading the Bible. True worship extends past the benediction into your Monday. True worship extends to what you do with your life Sunday night when you leave this place. How was Cain? Cain was angry when God didn't worship, when God didn't accept his worship. He went through 
the ritual. He did it. He went through the motions. He was making sure he wasn't worshiping any other God but God. Cain was angry. And his face fell. In Genesis 4-9, God says to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? This is after Cain killed Abel. He said, Cain says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Now, what's going on here? He's feigning innocence. There's deception involved. There's, there's a hiding of sinfulness. He, he's the one who did it, and yet he pretends like he doesn't know. How are we to God when God convicts us, confronts us with sin after the worship service? After the worship service, you know, I preach a hearty sermon. I'm happy with it. And then I go home to Sophia and Evelyn, and Evelyn's making a mess, and I get angry with her. And I'm impatient with her. What does that look like to God? Does it look like anything but hypocrisy? How are we to God after worship? Does our worship, does, does, the, does, does the principles shape us? Do our songs shape our hearts? Do they shape our minds, how we think, how we treat one another? And how are you to others after worship? Cain killed Abel. You're like, there's no way I'm going to kill someone after worship. Right? There's no way. In the New Testament, Jesus, we think hatred and murder are two different things. They have different physical consequences, yes. You don't get punished, like, civilly for hatred. Well, some, some, hate, some forms of hatred, it should be. But you do get civilly punished for murder. In the eyes of God, his standard is so much higher than our civil government and society. In the eyes of God, hatred and murder is the same thing. If we think murder is this bad, and we think hatred is this bad, not so bad, right? It's not that God is like kind of bringing down murder and bringing up hatred to equalize it and saying hatred and murder is the same thing. He does, he does the same thing for adultery and lust, right? We think adultery is this bad. We think lust is not so bad. In fact, you know, psychologically, our society tells us it's healthy. But in any case, God is not like bringing down the badness of murder and bringing up the badness of hatred. Murder is up here, and it will never change. What God is doing is your understanding of hatred is totally off, and it needs to come up here. You see, murder is this bad. You get it. But hatred is this bad, too. And you're saying, whoa, that's a whole different standard. And you're saying, yeah, it's God's standard. And you see, how you are to others after worship, that's part of your worship. That's part of your true worship to God. That's what worship is. If worship is just this compartmentalized ritual activity that we just do, and then after that, our life doesn't change, our thinking doesn't change, our affections are not molded and shaped by our worship, then that's not worship. And you see with every person's life that we have been accursed to, with every person's life, like Cain killed Abel, we've wronged, we've not only been wronged, right? sometimes in our churches, in second-gen churches, we, we tend to emphasize how wronged we've been. 
but we don't talk about how much we've wronged people, right? Now, here's the thing. Cain killed Abel. Abel's blood cries out. God said Abel's blood cries out when, Cain was, when God confronted Cain of his sin. And Cain was like, you know, I don't know where he is. Am I my brother's keeper? And then God responds by, you know, God did, it's not that he didn't know. He was trying to show Cain his heart. Cain refused to see it. And God basically said, the blood of your brother is crying out to me. Now, here's the thing. We leave a trail of hurts and harms to people. And when we come to worship, we have baggage. Because we're not only filled with scars, we have created scars. Now, here's the thing. How do you deal with that? Because if it's just the blood of those people that you've wronged, the only thing that blood will cry out to you is an accusation, saying what you did wrong. This is how bad of a person you were. This is what you did. You know, but when you look at true worship, especially, especially as we look towards the New Testament, we see a better blood that cries out, not for vengeance like Abel's blood did, but we see a blood that cries out in forgiveness and mercy in Jesus Christ. You see that in worship, the reason why your worship is acceptable is not because of the little amount of blood that you've, that you've prevented spilling in, in living your life. That's not how God gauges your worship to see how clean your hands are. God accepts your worship. You know, I talked about how important it is to think about the objective, not just the subjective experience of worship, but the objective truth that did God accept your worship regardless of you? You know where that, you know where you can find the hope and the encouragement of a yes, he has accepted your worship. Do you know where that is? It's not in looking at your hands and seeing how little blood Stain, how, how little blood stains you have on your hands. And saying, look at how moral I am. I only have five drops of blood. Look at that guy. His whole hand is red. That's not how God accepts your worship. The way that God accepts your worship is when you've been covered by the blood of Christ. And when he sees the blood, he accepts you. That's what worship is. It's trusting in the one who died the one who gave the perfect worship when all of us failed to do so. It's not on how good you preach, how well you know your theology. It's not on how good you sing, play, how well you sit, right? How well you dress, whether you're on time. I'm mentioning everything that I struggle with, right? It's not about that. Your worship is a is acceptable to God based on whose blood you are trusting in. And that is the blood of Christ and only Christ. So I want to encourage you with this. This is three, uh, yeah, three ver four verses from a man who also committed murder. And it's from, and he put it to a poem for the entire church of God, past, present, and future, to read. 
So basically, he wrote this diary, this journal entry about how he was a murderer and an adulterer. And yet, and he took that journal entry and he made it public. He basically posted it to the Facebook of the world, right? And this is what he says in Psalm 51. This is King David speaking. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. He killed Bathsheba's husband. O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips. He's admitting that he cannot worship God. What he's saying, he's not talking about the simple like singing or saying of a verse, right? What he's talking about is that I lack the ability to give you the proper worship unless you are the one who will open my lips so that I can, my lips can give you the proper worship that you desire and that you require. So he says in verse 15, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. And this is how he finishes it off in verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. True worship. It's not about you being perfect, but trusting in the one who gave the perfect worship for you. And that kind of heart that comes to God completely vulnerable and open about all your sins and weaknesses and confesses to God who you truly are, that you are not worthy to worship God. When you come like that, broken and contrite, God promises in his word. He will not despise you. He will accept you. He will love you. He will bless you. And that's my word of encouragement to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for bringing us to this place where we consider, your, where we consider what worship is. And Lord, every moment of our lives, engage our hearts, confront us of our sin. Grant us grace to respond to your confrontation with humbleness and brokenness and contriteness. And Lord, lift us up from our shame and our guilt so that we can walk with you united and holy with confidence and boldness, knowing that as repentant people of God, repentant children of God, we are not despised, but we have been accepted by the blood of the Lamb. In Jesus' name, amen.